Dhamma, we have to see how it applies to the mind directly. So today, what I'm going to do is to, I think, take us through, take us through the concepts by referring to life example, real life example. Okay. Now, <clears throat> you know that the entire range of earlier lectures were to explain the need to prepare the mind such that the mind can see Dhamma. And this module is about explaining what is the mind supposed to see. Now that we kept talking about the mind must see Dhamma, the mind must see Dhamma, right? So what's the mind supposed to see? And why? The mind must be able to see certain things, and when the mind can see those things, then the mind can understand, hopefully, the mind can understand why it has to do certain things to let go. Ultimately, it's about Nibbana. And to be able to realize Nibbana, the mind has to be able to let go. Let's just pose this question. We say normal mind can't see Dhamma, right? I always say that the normal mind, the normal mundane, everyday, average mind can't really, can't post, can't really see Dhamma. What do we mean by that? Why do we say that the normal mundane, average mind can't really see Dhamma? I think the first thing is this. A typical mind, a typical mind, maybe not your mind, lah, just a typical one, right? make certain assumptions. We all make assumptions. One of our assumptions is more is good. Chase after thing is good. Now, we all go in search of happiness. The moment we were born, the moment we realise about our relationship with the world, that there is a world out there and there are plenty of things out there and then we want those things, the moment we realise that, right, in us, there is a sense of, um, it's almost spontaneous, it's almost automatic, a desire for things. Anyway, we were saying, that, um, you see, when, the moment we are aware, the moment as a child, you're aware of the world, in time, over time, you will start to want things. It's very normal, it's very instinctive. And we grow up assuming that every time you get something you want, we are happy. And it's because that happens. You yearn for something, you crave for something. Every time you get it, there is that momentary gratification. You will like it, you'll be happy. It is normal. Yes? Yes. It is normal. Now, the problem is we don't realise that this is like feeding an addict. The more you feed that desire, that craving, that wanting, the more you feed it, the more you need more. And you just keep feeding and how long can you keep doing this, you see? You keep feeding and feeding and feeding and eventually the person is going to realise that the period of gratification, the period of happiness is just very short. Just for a short while. So we walk around 
very often with the assumption that more is good. And it may take us a long time before we realise that more actually, the jury is still out, whether or not it's truly good. Because very often, we get it, we get a momentary delight, and then it's back to the search. So first wrong assumption, more is good. Second wrong assumption, happiness is natural. A second assumption that we walk around with very often is that being happy is a natural state. You think about it, you just cast your mind back and you think about your own life. Every time you're unhappy, you say that's not normal. Every time you feel bosong, you will say, hey, this bosong, uh, I've got to do something about this, man. I've got to fix this. Right? It's very instinctive for that, for us. But the reality is, happiness is hard work. You've got to do something to make the mind happy for the normal mind. Satisfying it by giving it things, feeding it things, makes, gives it that momentary delight. You have to work at it. Relationship, in order that you can maintain good relationship and be happy, you end up pleasing people. You find yourself wanting to please people. Or people must please you. Lah. Either or, doesn't matter. Someone is being pleased. You see what I'm saying? People think happiness is natural. And yet, at the same time, they all work very hard to try and secure happiness. So something seems a bit off there. Ma. You see what I'm saying? A third thing... A third assumption is this. Have you ever heard this expression? I will be truly happy only when I find myself. Yes. Something like that. Have you heard of this expression? That I must find myself. I must find me. I must know my inner core. And then I think I'll be truly happy. Have you heard of this expression? The odds are, the odds are, there will be moments in your life that you actually feel this way. And that when you are in that moment of quiet, in that moment of um, being at peace, there is a very high chance you take that moment and say, I found me. Odds are, I found self. Very normal, very normal, but all wrong. All of the above are wrong. So that's one set of problems that we go around, our normal mind, without the benefit of Dhamma, without the benefit of having read, listened to, understand Dhamma, without the benefit of that, there is a very high chance that your normal mind, the average mind, is going to have all these assumptions. Having more is good. Being happy is normal, it's natural, it should be like this. And finding me, finding the inner self, is what makes 
life meaningful or is what makes me truly happy. These are assumptions, okay? There is a second problem with the normal mind. And the second problem, I call it basic mechanical problems. Mechanical problem number one. For us in daily life, when you are not meditating or you have not the benefit of knowing mindfulness meditation, the odds are when you experience things, when you are looking at things, relating to things, moving, having action, whatever, the odds are you are going to see everything as I. Your mind, your, your, yourself, the, the I, is actually embedded in the object. You're very caught up. When you eat, you just eat. Lah. Right? When you watch TV, you just watch. And then you become the character. And then you lament and you cry and you feel aggrieved and so on and so forth. You, you, you get yourself embedded. If you don't get yourself embedded in it, right, there is no way you get so affected by movies. You won't be the superhero. You won't be the beautiful woman. Man or woman, doesn't matter. You won't suddenly transform yourself into the cricket because the cricket is a funny one. Cartoon, cartoon. The point, the point is, the typical, the typical mind, without the benefit of meditation, whether it's in particularly mindfulness meditation, without the benefit of mindfulness meditation, the typical mind is likely to find itself embedded in objects. Which is why in the Mula Pariyaya Sutta, the Buddha actually talked about the Putujana mind being caught up in object. You are the object. Therefore, when you walk, you are the walking process. I am walking. You feel very I am walking. When you are eating, you are food, man. The food is you. Someone criticizes your cooking, you see what happened. Embedded. And you don't even realize it, you know. The first time you realize that you had been embedded in the object all your life, the first time you realized it is you have your first insight in mindfulness meditation. Not concentration meditation, mindfulness meditation. The very first time you do your lifting, 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 pushing, pushing, stepping, stepping. Oh, sorry, sorry. This cannot too late. Then you'll be floating. <laughs> should be one at a time. Lifting, lifting, moving, moving. You know, when you do this, when you, when you eat at the pace of the sloth, that slow motion way, uh, when you start doing that, you basically force the mind to slow down, to observe every little frame, frame, every mental frame. When you force the mind to go into mental frame by frame, the mind suddenly realizes it's not in one beautiful broad stroke. It's in digital parts. That's when the mind realizes that each mental, physical experience is experienced in digital parts. 
first time you will realize that. Otherwise, as far as you're concerned, everything is in strokes. You are embedded in the object. It's a mechanical problem. That's how your mind works. Things work too fast. You can't see the parts. The second problem, the second problem is when the mind experiences life in digital parts which are so fast, the mind happily weaves all the parts into something it calls life. Right? My life is like that. <laughs> all broad strokes, all painted out already. If, if they were to, if your mind were to see it in disconnected parts, the mind will have a moment when it goes, what's that? Why is it like that? But as long as it doesn't see things in digital, the, the mental, physical experiences, if it doesn't see that in parts, bits, as long as it doesn't catch a glimpse of that, it will always see everything in whole. And when it is in a whole, it will happily labor the whole as my life, me, I. The I, the mind, the me makes an appearance in your mind when there is, it, it behaves like a receptacle to collect all the experience, experiences that you remember. Everything that you recorded, right? Like a, tele, like a camera, like, everything recorded in the recording that you gather together because you have them all filed inside here. Anytime you want, you can pull out the file, retrieve easily. As long as your brain works properly, you can retrieve your file easily. Every time you retrieve all those files, as far as your concern, life, my life, my life. You see what I'm saying? So, in this practice, Buddha had to get your mind to break this habit and to be able to recognize the parts. That's the importance of seeing everything in parts. What is the mind supposed to see? We went through two weeks ago on the parts. I'm going to repeat parts of it, okay? The first thing, actually, see them in two parts. Huh? I know the parts are in two parts. One set are the mechanical ones. Your, your organs, the eye organ, the ear, the nose, the, the tongue, uh, tactile, the body, skin, and the brain. That's your six sense spaces. These are the organic ones, okay? Then you have another set belonging to the same category, which is what we call the five aggregates. Five aggregates essentially breaks down into mind and body. Right? The mind in itself has four... Um, I'm not sure of the correct technical term for it, but it's cognitive functions. Four cognitive functions. The capacity to identify something, 
we label it as sanya perception, the capacity to label, to say what this thing, what these things are. That capacity to label is one cognitive function. As you label, you have an emotional reaction to it that's Vedana, feelings. You are capable of forming thoughts pertaining to any objects that you encounter. Anything that you look at, there will be thoughts associated with it. Very often, these thoughts are driven by what you want. That's why we call them volitional formation. Thoughts driven by what you want. You don't think, you generally, the normal person doesn't think of something they don't want to think about. If they don't want to think about it, they also want to think about it. I don't want to think about him. Then I think about him. I don't want to think about him. <laughs> think about him. When you don't want to think about it, you also end up think, thinking about something. And if you don't think about it, truly, truly, the thing doesn't even enter your mental frame. That thing doesn't matter. Not to you. Therefore, you don't own it, you see. For instance, huh? someone knocked into you on the road. If you're a very nice person, which I'm sure you all are, very nice people, that's it, you don't really care. You wouldn't come here and repeat broadcast. You know, uh, just now got this person, uh, not into me, da, da, da. You won't do that, right? Because whatever happens, it's over. Your mind doesn't register it. You don't think about it. In contrast, your son, your daughter, your father say you, Say only one word. Kena jam inside already, cannot tahan. Right? And then, guess what? Because the you, the I, am affected, the feeling is bosong. You, even when you don't want to think about it, you will think about it because the feelings have been affected. The mind says it's important because it affects the I, I need to think about it. So the mind keeps thinking about it. Even when it's like, I don't think about it, it will still think about it. This is a faulty recorder. Okay? And it happens. Now, first, to know these parts. They are a part of your daily existence. They are there all the time. All of us here have six functioning organs and very uh, sane mind. Oh, I forgot the, the other parts. Huh? One more. Consciousness. Vinyana. Consciousness. And consciousness is essentially a platform where the other, where you are able to pay attention or direct, direct attention to the, which part is taking the front line. Vinyana, I repeat. Whichever part comes into the limelight into the mental limelight, it takes center stage. Vinyana is the stage for it to, to have that performance. And I, as I've said, and Buddha has said this also, you can have one at a time. There is no such thing as two simultaneously functioning Vinyana at the same time. Not possible. It's one at a time. You can hear. You can see, you can taste, you can smell. They all happen very fast. You think that it is all happening at the same time. But actually, they all take turns. They all take turns to hop onto your consciousness. 
Why do I say that? If you look at your own awareness, uh, if you look at your own mind, at any one time, right, if you are listening to me, there, if you pay attention to the sound, there is a decent chance that at that point when you're paying attention to the words, you're actually not really looking at me, even though your eyes are here. There is a decent chance that you're actually not looking at me. Why do I say that? I can do all kinds of things here, and then if you're focused here listening to me, you wouldn't know what I'm doing here. But your eyes are facing here, ma. You mean your eye tunnel vision? You only can see here. You can't see what's going on here. Cannot be. You can, right? If you were to pay attention to the vision, whatever I just said has just gone this way. It is like that. This is how the mind works. The normal mind. So, one part of what you're supposed to see pertains to all this organic mechanism. The organs, how they function as is. That's only one part. That's not the Dhamma yet. The Dhamma comes in when you apply the three characteristics into all the organic experiences. To ask you to see seeing is not Dhamma. To ask you to see seeing in the context of Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta is Dhamma. You understand that? That was what I couldn't drive across to you guys the last time. <laughs> because I was too caught up with the suttas. Therefore, in this practice, in your meditation, in your day-to-day -day watching, it is not just to get your mind to a level of seeing that you can see everything in parts and end there. It doesn't end there. After you are able to bring your mind to quieten down such that you're beginning to pick up and pay attention to individual experiences, oh, this is see-seeing. That I'm seeing, I'm seeing object. There is seeing object. You see how the words keep changing? There's seeing object. There's an object, there's seeing, I'm registering it. Emotion is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, not, not, nothing neutral. Okay? I can label it. I'm beginning to spot these. All of you who have gone and we are meditating now, I'm assuming. You all would have noticed all these little, little bits. How come I haven't realised? Because didn't do it right. Got one more part. Apply Anicca Dukkha Anatta to the seeing. To the seeing. What does it mean? When you see an object, or when you hear a piece of music, or when you taste something, at the moment, at that moment when you are observing the experience carefully, you will notice that it comes in parts, right? Taste, emo um, like, what is this? Must have more. If you were quiet enough, you will catch the little bits. No arising of thoughts. That's, that's an observation. Note. It might strike you it might strike you that these parts happen in succession. 
because they happen in succession, it surely must be impermanent, ma? Per moment is impermanent. Register, next one. Register, next one. Register, the next one. And then you say, okay, that's easy enough. This is the easy part. If you see even deeper into, I'm just talking about impermanence now. I'll talk about the rest later. Just, just on impermanence alone, did you even start to observe the features of change? The best ones I find for many of us, the best object to use in trying to see change, actually the two best objects, one, body, form, especially when your legs are cramping and you stare at it. Your body starts to have uh, change. It's not cram. Put something on it and then it just cram. It doesn't. It actually changes. There's, there's blood flowing in there. Blood is flowing. There are electrical impulses. If you stare at your body very closely, you will start to observe electrical impulses. How, how sensations change within the body. Especially if you have pain. If you hurt yourself, I will not advise to you to deliberately hurt yourself. There's no need to do that. But if you should, if you should have a physical ailment or if you should have pain, somebody would be very familiar with people's pain, other people's pain. You observe the actual phenomenon of pain changing. So the physical form is the best way to see it. You just have to sit there and not move. Don't move. And when you feel very uncomfortable, don't move. Just, just stay a while more. The pain will start. And when the pain starts, ah, you can watch already, right? You can see the body. Bodily reaction to stress. Bodily stress. The pain will start. And you can watch. And you can really watch change. So that's one. The second one is feelings. We are all so caught up with our feelings. Especially when you are depressed. When you are happy, harder to watch. Because you're so busy enjoying the delight. Ah, my daughter's so smart. My son's so brilliant. I ah, married the wife. So nice. What a lovely person. When you have all these things going on, very difficult to watch. Lah. But pain is different. Someone dies. Oh, you can... The pain, you know, you just drag. You can follow it. Mm, roller coaster ride. Now, this way it's different. Huh? A practitioner serves the pain. A non-practitioner will ride with the roller coaster. <laughs> A practitioner will serve, serve it. Meaning you ride over it. You watch over it. But if you're caught up in it, then you're not surfing it. Okay? Now, Impermanence as a feature, as described by the Buddha, was brilliant. If we were to see only God don't have, God don't have, ah, lesser, ah, more, more intense. If you see that way, it's actually blunt seeing, very blunt. The way you're able to catch it, 
rather blunt, gross. If you're able to see it very clearly, you start to be able to see features of change. And as I've explained to you the last time, you start to realise that change in permanence is condition. Meaning, it rides upon the previous and it rides upon previous. Something brings about change. So all this explanation about conditionality is part of explaining Anicca. Okay? This thing about this, this concept of conditionality and the idea of impermanence, they're intertwined. In fact, conditionality is brilliant. Conditionality is all three features, all three characteristics embedded in it. Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, all into conditionality. As, which is why when you see conditionality, you will understand Dhamma. Because when you see conditionality, it means you have understood Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta properly. And when you have understood Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta properly, Anatta properly, then the odds are you know how to let go. As long as you can't let go properly, you can't really fang the siya. As long as that's not possible, it merely means that the way you understand, the way you see these concepts in your meditation, in your daily life, that way is incomplete. You know it. You've seen it. It helps you in your practice. You are a different person over time. And the more you understand, the better you find yourself as a person. The better you will score yourself. You will say, I yesterday only B minus. But as I practice, I'm now B. Very modest, man. We are very modest. So only B. But then as you practice really hard, you're beginning to be, okay, la, really, I'm B plus. La. I'm seriously B plus. No, no, we're modest, modest. Never A one. Just B plus. Eh? We're very, plump, very, very happy with ourselves. Like that, la, you will start to see improvement. But not complete. Okay? If you're complete, conditionality and everything else is obvious. Okay, so one is condition, dependently a reason, meaning each moment that you experience came up only because the previous moment was there. And the previous moment was there. It writes point after point after point. What I tried so hard to explain, there is an external object, there is a functioning internal organ, your consciousness put attention on that, you see. Because your mind is working, you can label it. Oh, Buddha Rupa, you label it. Feeling follows. Contact, feeling follows. With feeling comes possibly it will be the craving part really, the wanting or not wanting. Craving goes both ways. Eh? Craving is I want it. Craving is also I don't want it. Why is that craving? I crave not to have it. I crave for you not to be here. I crave for you to xiao shi zai wo yan qian. Must show off a bit of Chinese these days. Okay? It's, it's like that. Whether you want something or you don't want something, it's a form of craving. How often do we tell ourselves we cannot do this? We shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do it. It's not Buddhist. Eh? They're very dukkha. 
very dukkha because you craving for yourself to approve of yourself, craving for doing the right thing, craving for being able to have the discipline not to do it. You know how many cravings there are? It's a triple, quadruple whammy, you know. So anyhow, let's move on. So, condition. In each moment, once experience passes away. Each moment, once experience will pass away. You see, the next one is you think, the next one is you want, the next one, it goes on. You can't see, 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 and then do nothing else. <laughs> it doesn't work. Your mind doesn't work like that. In other words, the stream, the stream of thought processes very fast. And everything that, every experience that you have already experienced, it's over. New one has come on. Okay? So, subject to destruction. Each one that comes out is finished. They, it, they take only a nanosecond in your mind. Nanosecond. Fades away. Now, you can see things... When we talk about impermanence, change, you can see it to the nanosecond. Or you can see it at a very strategic level, very broad stroke. What do I mean by that? Let's say you're watching pain. Okay, you're watching pain of your, your legs. You can see down to the point where you can actually see electrical impulses. Tuck, 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 tuck. Yes? For those of you who are meditators, the rest don't need to say lah. For those of you who are meditators, you've seen it down to the digital level. You're, either that or you didn't sit long for long enough. So your leg never got cramped. <laughs> half an hour, oh, up, half an hour, how to get cramped? Minimally one plus hour, then you get cramped. So uh, maybe you will have cramped? <laughs> no need to be so modest, okay? And the point is, when you start to see those digital points, that is seeing it at a very minute level. If you cut yourself sharp, not that you have to cut yourself, okay? Sharp, right? And then you start looking at that, you can see it down to its literal digital level. Very sharp. Not, 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 not that it's a very sharp pain, that you're very sharp in your watching. So you see down to just dots. Yes? Okay, that's very minute seeing. So your impermanence, your change is in that digital point. Top, 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 top. But if you pull back and you look at it just broadly, look at it broadly, there is pain, but my emotion is not caught up. I'm not caught up. The, there is no pushing pain away, there's just watching pain. And then you start noticing that your emotion may actually be going like a rhythm. It comes up, it goes away, it comes out, it goes away. It's very, it's very broad, rhythmic. When you see change at that broad rhythmic level, then you will say, arises and it falls away, it fades away. So change, the idea of change, the phenomenal of change, can be experienced differently. It all depends on how sharp your watching is 
and then how well your mind pulled back. Incidentally, uh, I need to make this point clear. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that when you watch something in a very vague, broad way, that it is wrong. No, it depends on which stage of the practice you are experiencing change that way. If you, when you start off, when you first started meditation, right, and you're watching the changing phenomenon in yourself very closely, when you start off, you, the odds are you're not very skillful. The odds are you're not very skillful. And therefore, the only thing you can see is in broad strokes. It's like a baby with a brush and ask him to paint an apple. The apple is just going to look like that. Broad strokes. Then one day, the baby grew up, grew a bit older, able to have that dexterity of the fingers. Now the apple got shade. In the same way, the more you see, the better you are in seeing the digital parts. The, the, you're able to see change, impermanence, in greater detail. Okay? Now the baby has grown up. And because the baby has grown up, the baby will just paint like that. And in three strokes, the baby make a beautiful apple. Just three strokes. Possible? Artists are like that. Trust me, it's possible. Okay? What does this mean? It means that when you have become very skillful in watching down to the worm level, you must know how to pull back and see the phenomenal at a bird's eye view. With a bird's, with a bird's eye view. Cannot be worm level. Got to be able to pull back. Because if you don't pull back, you can't, you can't tell your mind it's time to let go. As long as you are still caught up with the soil, you wouldn't know how to let go. Because you're so caught up in watching. You understand that? So, at a higher level, at a deeper level of practice, I would advise you to start pulling your camera back. For those of you who are very new to the practice, to the, to the mindfulness watching, feel free, count the pebbles, count the sand. Go right deep down and watch change. In the body, in the mind, uh, in the thought process, doesn't matter. Just watch closely and spot the phenomenon, okay? So that's about anicca. So when you see things, when you eat, when you walk, when you do all kinds of things, observe change, observe impermanence. Observe how the mind keeps shifting. The sharper you watch, the better you, the more you catch, the more you learn about the nature of your mind. If you do not pay attention, some of you I know not paying attention, to the little, little details, maybe because you think it's boring, it is so boring, maybe. But, but if you can't see those little digital parts changing, you can't see it in daily life, you can't see it in meditation, then what happens? Can't see lah. Can't see, okay? So that's 
Anicia. Dukkha. You can't see, can you see? You remind yourself it's impermanent. Conceptual. Conceptual. Yeah. To tell yourself that it is impermanence, yes, yes, when you start with the practice, good point, when you start with the practice, you tell yourself. That is correct. When you're very new, right? Hello, you're so new, right? You're the baby with the diapers, huh? very new. Then, must lah, must tell yourself, mommy say don't touch this, don't touch, don't touch. Mommy say cannot do that, don't do, don't do. Mommy say must do this, do this accordingly. Baby, follow instruction properly. Properly. And this is where you need to... I, I, this, I, I'm glad you brought this up. This is where I think people need to be honest with themselves. You need to be honest with yourselves. Don't bluff yourself that you have seen this, you have seen that, that you have understood this, you have understood that. Because if you bluff yourself, that only you get tricked. If you convince yourself that you have seen A, B, C to Z, then you happily drop off the train, then run off, I'm realized. <laughs> Happy. <laughs> like a luck. And there's a problem. So, we earlier, on, we earlier on chanted the precepts. The fourth precept, right? No false speech. That one is so important, not just about us relating to the world, it's us relating to ourselves. We are the we are perfectly capable of misleading ourselves. So this part is very important. If you see, if you see a nature, it has to be seen and understood and realized. For yourself, this this phenomenon that I'm observing in my mind, in my meditation, in the body, this phenomenon I'm seeing, this is impermanence, as the Buddha explained it. The mind must have the paniya. This is where your paniya comes in. The mind must have the paniya to spot and understand what it means. The importance of paniya is in spotting the phenomenon, because it's always happening. You cannot tell me that I can't see it, it's not there. It's there. You can't see because your not enough. The understand what you're seeing. You see what I'm saying? The pania is necessary for you to spot what's going on. Spot the phenomenal in the mind. The pania is necessary for after spotting that phenomenon. Hey, 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 that's interesting. The pania goes, and then the pania says, "Oh, I know what this is. This is anicca. Hey, anicca, I'm seeing anicca. Happy. Pania must do that. Pania doesn't do the happy part. Pania handles the. I know what you are. This is pania. This is this is uh, anicca. Then pania must say, "You see anicca. What do you do?" If you spot the phenomenal of change in your meditation or your daily life, right? After you spotted it, what do you do? Paneer will tell you what to do. You've got the correct paneer. The paneer will say, okay, now, 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 now. Now that you register it, reflect. Deepen the seeing. See, see anymore? Is there something else to have a look? Paneer does that. No paneer. Paneer insufficient. I mean, you use all your paneer already, right? Then your response will be, 
got it ready. Now I can go celebrate. Uh, what's up the rest? <laughs> what's up my friend? Guess what just happened to me? Pani a bit singing. That's what it means. Okay? So that's Anicca. Now we talk about Dukkha. Actually, actually, Dukkha is seeing things as they really are. Not just Anicca, not Anatta, the Dukkha one. This one in particular. Let me explain why. Look, when, when we use the word Dukkha, right, everybody knows what it means. Even my, how old is she? Then your own niece know. Dukkha, I know. She knows what it means. That was our problem. Why did the Buddha kept saying, Dukkha must be understood properly. I repeat, huh? we went through the, the Dhamma Chakra Pautana Sutta the last time, right? Dukkha has to be understood. And Dukkha has been understood. Only then can you claim to have understood Dhamma. Huh? Dukkha has to be understood. Craving has to be abandoned. Relief has to be realized. The path has to be practiced. This was how the Buddha said, explained the Four Noble Truths. So then we ask ourselves, eh, we don't feel Dukkha meh? Daily life, we don't feel Dukkha meh? We don't feel Dukkha, we'll all be very happy. What? No need to sit here and listen to Dhamma talk. All go home be very happy. The fact is, we feel Dukkha, but it doesn't mean we understand Dukkha. We don't know how it happens. We only know we are experiencing it. That doesn't mean that you know how it happens and how to get rid of it. Example, many of us in this room, with the exception of maybe two, or possibly three, many of us in this room are drivers. I, for one, don't know how to change a tyre. I have no idea how the, how the engine works. But I can make my car go very fast. <laughs> we, we all experience Dukkha. But we don't know the mechanics of it. We don't understand the mechanics of it. We don't understand we don't understand that in our natural, in our, our mundane mind, the experience of dukkha is natural. The assumption that one should be happy, that assumption is a delusion. In order to be truly happy, dukkha has to be eradicated. As long as dukkha is not eradicated, then the belief that one can be happy will remain like that, law, a belief. Then when we don't get it in this life, we believe we will get it in the next life. It's a belief, law. You see what I'm saying? So, usually, the typical person, and we are typical, right? I'm assuming you're, we are all typical, huh? Typical, typical. The typical person, how do they handle dukkha? Ignore it, bury it, get something to replace it. 
Ay, I feel very stressed. Ah, let's go eat. Ah, go eat. <laughs> yeah? Blame somebody? Don't think about it. Don't think about it. We do all kinds of things, right? We try to fix things, but we fix it in the wrong way. Like, for instance, I'm feeling very ducker. I'm feeling very ducker because my wife nags at me all the time. Tell me I must go home at 11 o'clock. How to go home at 11 o'clock? Seriously. Very ducker. So we fix it. Okay, I tell you what, tomorrow I take you out. Ah. I think I buy you handbag. Ah. Then I think I can go out. Ah. <laughs> you fix it like that, lah, you know? You know what kind of, this kind of fixing, this kind of fixing is clever. But I call it, I call it, I call it band aid. Inside there's a cancer, but never mind, just band aid, band aid. Takoyo lah. Just ta. This is what, that's, and, and if you have never listened to Dhamma, and if you have never, Dhamma had never spoken to you, so you have never been inspired to learn Dhamma, right? If that never happened, then you will go to your grave. Ben 8, Ben 8, Ben 8, Ben 8. <laughs> Duker follows wherever you go. <laughs> like a hungry ghost that never give up. That should be my new poem. <laughs> so, Duker, therefore, how in Buddhism are we supposed to deal with it? And in Buddhism, the way to deal with dukkha correctly is to watch it, to experience it, to know it like a best friend, literally. Because the moment you start to see dukkha as it is, the sensation, you, you see, many of us, when we feel pain, right, we siam already. The moment we feel pain, we siam. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't think about it. I, you want to think, you want to see, you do whatever you want. I don't want to listen. I'm definitely quite good at acting. Huh? I don't want to listen. I don't want to hear. That's what we do. But the, reality, but the, the way to do it properly in Buddhism is first to get the mind quiet, to get the mind objective. Remember, your, all those preparatory work once you are able to get all those preparatory work done properly, the mind is objective, quiet, sharp, clear. This mind can go and watch the nature of dukkha. Because this mind wouldn't be caught up, wouldn't be sucked in, wouldn't, be, wouldn't look at dukkha and feel that it is like quick sand. The more it's down, it wouldn't feel like that. Dhamma, if you practice and do all the preparatory work for your mind, right? You do it all correctly. Those preparatory work, they are like planks. Planks on the quicksand of dukkha. Step on it, you won't go through. But you can still observe it in the midst of it. That's the idea. So in this practice, you have to be able to keep the mind quiet Keep it objective and let this very quiet, objective, wise, panir, wise mind. Wise because it has picked up all the Dharma knowledge already. Have this mind look at the nature of dukkha. Look at it. It's painful. Watch it. What will happen when you start looking at dukkha? You will notice that dukkha is like an energy. 
It intensifies, but it will also diminish. One day it is strong, not one day, one minute it is strong, next minute it's crushed. It keeps changing. Your sensation of dukkha doesn't stay constant. It keeps changing. Now, if you keep looking and looking and looking at a sensation that drops and changes and morphs by the minute, if you keep looking, a point will come when you realize that this is just it. The force of the, the force of dukkha, the energy of dukkha is just it. Nothing very much more. This is when you start to realize that I can ride this. I can overcome this. It is not that difficult. And I can see that the reason why I experience all this discomfort is because my craving is so strong. For those of you with depression, depression, or who get angry and then the anger lasts from the last life type. I don't know why, but I feel this way about the fellow. Last time I must have seen him before, man. That kind one, ah. So the anger lasts of the last life type one, ah. ah. Those kind, you just go and watch at your own craving, the energy of craving. The odds are that craving bigger than this, this building. The odds are. And for the those of you who are generally deep, generally quite happy, generally, like, generally quite happy type, right? Chances are that craving of yours is there. You're not, not arahan, so the craving is there. But not too strong, not too overwhelming. So you don't feel too bad. Yes, it arises. Then you have the wisdom, you have the sensibility to say, ah, Sudah lah, lah. You have that. Whereas the other guy who carried his anger from the last life one, right? That one, that one doesn't have the doesn't have the pania, doesn't have the wisdom to say, it's okay, I'll put it aside. Doesn't have ah. So, guess what? He's gonna carry it to the next life. Really got to get it right, you know. <laughs> so, so when you are watching Dukkha, what you need to remember is whether or not your mind is quiet, it's objective, it is distant and can see, and uh, you have a panya, the wisdom that tells you, learn to let go of the craving. Don't hold. Don't hold on to the I. Don't hold on to the mind. These things are all mind-made. I let go. This is where your tell yourself again and again part comes in. Then the dukkha, right? If you see the dukkha, it will then start to look like just dukkha energy. That's all. It doesn't, it doesn't get overwhelming. Okay? Last bit. Actually, it's not a last bit. It's a long bit. And then we will, we will break. This is on anatta. I told you that you watch the five, the five aggregates and the six sense bases. Those are the things you're familiar with, right? Surely you're familiar with vision, with hearing, with tasting, surely you'll be very familiar, right? Huh? Watch those things in the context of Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta all the time. Just remember that. So the third one we're going to talk about is Anatta. Anatta, the concept, the idea is very difficult. It's very tricky to crack. As an idea, you all can imagine what it means. Soullessless, ma. Huh? Some of you more advanced. Substancelessness. Some of you lucky more advanced. 
essenceless. What does it mean? You know, it's supposed to be a way, a perspective, a way you see the world, a way that you understand the world to be in relation to you. Now, the problem is the I ego, that awareness, when you are aware and there, is, there are no thoughts, uh, there are no thoughts, when you are aware, there is a very high chance this awareness, right, you will say it's the I. The problem is exactly that. The problem is we instinctively take all experiences and make it and make a receptacle to hold the experience. The mind automatically creates. Otherwise, where you got soul? Where does it come from? Tell me, anybody seen soul? Put out your hand if you have seen a soul. No need your own, others also care. Ghost, Ghost is not soul! <laughs> I, I, I bet you, uh, I, you, know, you know Descartes, right? 16th century French philosopher Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. I'm pretty sure you listen to that phrase and say, oh, I agree. Well, now no, now you're a Dhamma student, you don't agree. But if you were not a Dhamma student, if you were never a follower of the Buddha, you listen to the phrase, I think, therefore I am, and you, it feels right. That's why he's so famous, ma. It feels right. But what is the reality as science had been able to prove? We don't take the Buddha word. Science had been able to prove. There is an ecosystem called the body and the brain. It's an ecosystem. Why do I say that? Are you controlling, are, are you playing traffic police to the bloodstreams? No. Are you managing the digestive juices so that it knows what to digest and what to extract for the nutrients of the body? No. And you surely are not planning the excretory process. Yeah? We are not doing anything to the body. The body has its own rules and system, organic rules, biological rules, physics. What goes in must come out, physics. All these are not controlled by you. Nothing. This is only the body. The mind is more interesting. Did you know your brain, right? There's 20,000 God knows how many workers inside there, uh, meaning the processors, right? There is an organic process going on that you have nothing to do with. And when you go to sleep at night, you think your brain shut down. Ah. Oh, <laughs> I'm sleeping tonight. <laughs> Everything switched off. <laughs> no, right? It continues to function. It continues to do its sorting, fouling, recording, purging, uh, uh, what do you call it? Destroying all those materials that don't need one so that there are more RAM space for tomorrow's activities. Trashing! <laughs> Correct, trashing. You had anything to do with it? Nothing. Your awareness had nothing to do with 
any of the thing. So, what is your awareness? Your, your awareness does nothing. The whole ecosystem up here, down there, does everything, but they do everything themselves. And you had nothing to do with it. Isn't that anatta? Anatta, now I explain to you this word, this very interesting word. In Vedic time, Buddha's time, sorry, in Buddha's time, the prevailing conventional belief of the day, the Brahmana belief of the day, uh, was that there is an essence in, inside us. Like a little human, like, like, a, like, a, like a little essence driving inside there. Okay? And this essence, bright, beautiful. Let me read the words. Actually, I, I brought my iPad so that I can read, but no need to read. Uh. And the, basically, it's the, the, the word utter literally means essence, breath. They believe the breath is where the essence is, was. That it is eternal, ageless, true, radiant. It's beautiful. Okay? And given that this was their belief, then you listen to how the Buddha tries to try to explain the connection between the three characteristics, huh? the three features. And I read to you the way he said it. Not the way we imagine it, huh? the way he said it. We take form. Buddha asked, is form permanent or impermanent? So the disciple replied, impermanent. Is what is impermanent, pleasant or painful? So first question, that being the first question means it's the easiest to see. And we all, even without deep meditation, could say that form is impermanent. Tomorrow you've got one more wrinkle, impermanent. Okay? Is what is impermanent uh, pleasant or painful? Okay? And their reply, painful. Why this? Our instinct, at a very superficial level, uh, at a very superficial level, we actually are uncomfortable with change. At a very superficial level, we like something predictable, something stable. No change is good. Look, if you sit comfortably, why do you want to change? Why do you want to move? And, and we, we keep hunting, hunting for perfection, right? It's because we are not satisfied with, with this. We are looking for the perfect one, looking for something else. So in the process of the change in itself, it's because there's dissatisfaction. That's why you're looking for... It's both ways. Huh? Change is unpleasant because by its very nature, change by its very nature is unpleasant. Change is unpleasant as a result of you finding the moment, the experience, unpleasant. They're not the same. They are not the same. I repeat, 
Change is unpleasant by its very nature. By its very nature of change, it is unpleasant. Change is unpleasant because change is the result of you finding something unpleasant. As I said, you sit there, if you're happy, you wouldn't move. It's because you're unhappy, you keep moving. Your change is because you don't, you're not satisfied. Get it? This one is obvious, right? Why do you put on makeup? Then uh, the one that this face I don't like. Shh, change. <laughs> because not nice enough. Not show enough. Right? When you want to change your house, uh, I like that one better. Uh, not, not good enough. So change. Change by its very nature. Why do you change? Because you don't like it. You want to change. So it doesn't seem unpleasant. But at the same time, actually change in itself. Change in itself is unpleasant. The whole process of coming together again and again, eating again and again, doing things again and again, living life again and again, go through PSLE again and again, very painful. Change in itself is painful. Okay? Then the Buddha asks, Now, is what is impermanent, what is painful, since it's subject to change, fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this is I, this is not myself. You listen to the way the Buddha asks. He asks, this is impermanent. And... It is painful. Is it fit to be regarded thus? Is it obvious to you? Meaning to say, should you call something that changes and it's painful, should you call it utter? Because this is mine, this I am, this is myself, that's, that's the summation of utter. Should you is it fit to call it, should you call it, utter? And the reason why the sequence was like that is in ancient India, they had this idea that utter is beautiful. Utter is happiness. Utter is pure. Utter doesn't change. Utter has no change. It's eternal. It's eternal. Eternal, beautiful joy to behold. So, if you go by that Indian logic, this is impermanent. This is painful. Is this utter? So, going by the Indian logic, it is, I mean, ancient Indian logic, it is not utter. Get it? This is why this particular sequence of flow to the ordinary person today doesn't come spontaneously understandable. We, we listen to it and we go, I don't see the logic. Why, why, why this one means no so? How does the logic flow? It's partly because this was the ancient Indian idea of what's an utter. And an utter is permanent. So he says it's impermanent, right? Utter is beautiful. Utter is radiant. Utter is ageless. Utter is joy. But it's painful, right? 
your experience is painful, right? Moment to moment, you experience dukkha, right? So how? The utter of your understanding shouldn't be there. You understand that? Now, if you were to take it from our angle, our angle now, and from our angle, we, we can say it like this. If indeed you have something which is deep essence, one assumption must be that you are in control. Not you, but the essence can be in control. If it's not in control of the body, surely it must be in control of the mind. After all, it's married, right? It's embedded in the mind, supposedly, right? Then how come you can't control anything in your mind? You try to control yourself from not crying, doesn't work. You try not to lose your temper, doesn't work. If you don't have the practice, you don't understand the path, you don't know how to let go, nothing works. Prozac lah. Prozac. <laughs> so, the, the Buddha, in trying to explain anatta, tried to do it in different ways. And I can actually sum it in two major ways, two major parts. Part one, in a way, it's talking to the people who are more intellectual, who think, who reflect, who have wisdom, and they keep comparing what they practice to themselves. So he will explain, explain. It's impermanent, it's painful. Is that utter? Can you see the utter is missing? There's no such thing. Alternatively, it is to explain to people, look, can you see everything is in parts, in parts. Every experience, it experiences, it's in parts. So if everything is in parts, where is your utter? So he asked people, is the utter to be found in the eye? This one, this one, Machu. Is it to be found in the vision? Is it to be found in the ear or the hearing or the sound? Is it found in your feeling? So he kept saying, you tear it up into parts. Where in those parts is the actor? And then the student will say, no, can't find it, can't feel it. Okay, so that's one way he tries to get the people to understand and see another through taking them through the steps of watching their mind, understanding the logic of the arguments, and then some of them will realise it this way, some of, will, will, some of them will realise it in a different way. There's another part, the second part, which is more to do with people who have tremendous faith, they take him for his words, they just go as he teaches, he taught them. So you tell them, everything that you see, experience, say, this is not me, this is not I, this is not myself, not my utter. When you keep repeating this mantra again and again in your daily life, when you remember and when you see, you just say it, right? When you keep doing that, after a while, the sensation that not quite I in the picture, 
that sensation starts to set in. That sensation of anatta will start to make an appearance in your mind. This is the second way it is done. It's a combination of both for most of us, but I'm explaining that actually there are two different methodologies of achieving it. I explain to you until your mind accepts it and you start to look out for it. And or you practice by keep repeating the mantra. Every time you eat, you taste. Taste is not I. Taste, I, it's not me, not mine. There is no self tasting this. It's a mantra. You keep doing that. And then the mind angle will start to shift. Okay? You know, for long-standing practitioners, Dharma teachers, so on and so forth, this particular concept uh, has always been seen as a little tricky, a little complex. Many people will have some reservations about teaching it. Um, I think partly because of that expression, when you see Bhattacharya you see the Dhamma. That expression, right? Almost seeming to imply that if you can't understand the 12, depending on origination, that, that, that relationship, you haven't seen Dhamma. Alternatively, it's the other way around. If you can explain it brilliantly, you must have seen Dhamma. Because of that, that expression, there seems to be all these um, heavy expectations of what it means when someone understands or not. So that's an opening remark. I, I thought I should lay this on the table. Um, I'm going to offer a perspective. I'm going to offer an, a perspective, my understanding of what it means. Um, it's not a conventionally held viewpoint. May not be a conventionally healthy. I shall rephrase it. It may not be a conventionally health viewpoint, but I'm just sharing my perspective of what I think uh, a way of understanding this samupadda in a way, understanding it in a way which is not too daunting for people. Not too daunting for people to understand. Okay. First and foremost. I think it's good to start with this perspective. In the same way that you see Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path, in the same way that you understand Tilakana, the three characteristics, you understand it at your level. As you start to go deeper and deeper into Dhamma, your understanding of the concepts will become clearer, hopefully, clearer and clearer, sharper and sharper, more intuitive and increasingly you know you're probably on the right track in terms of understanding. In the same way, Four Noble Truth, Eightfold Path, Tilakana, in the same way that your understanding deepens, I think you should take this approach with Paticca Samuppada, dependent origination. 
It is not something you understand just like this, but it is okay to first have an understanding of the concepts, and then over time, you will have, you will develop an understanding of what it truly means at your level of appreciation. Okay, it's a gradual dawning of appreciation. It doesn't come suddenly. It's not one day you wake up, hop out of bed and, I know what it means. It doesn't work like that. It takes a long time as you, and as you try to see the mind, it becomes obvious. Another point I want to make, these are all preamble statements. Huh? Another point I want to make is this. Paticha Samupada is explains, it explains what goes on in your mind. It is not a thought process per se. It merely explains what is going on when you are experiencing, when you are relating to the world. How your mind process information, how your mind thinks about them, and then how your mind, how you then react to the world. It explains that. Okay? It doesn't mean, and I, I need to, to, to point out, it doesn't mean it is a thought process per se, in the same way that you understand what Apidama, um, you know, you have the thought process, and I can't remember how many parts there were. 16? 16 parts, something like that. None of you done Apidama before? No lah. <laughs> no, the thought process, I think it's 16 or 17 parts. I can't remember. It, it doesn't work like that. Okay? Uh, the other point I want to point out uh, is this. Actually, if you look at different suttas, you might actually notice that the start point, the start point of Paticca Samuppadda, right? That start point is not always the same start point. The one that we commonly know, the one that is often used, the, the start point that's often used is avidya, ignorance, right? Avidya pachaya sankara, shankara pachaya vinyana, vinyana pachaya nama rupa. That's the usual flow. So how does it go? The usual uh, recitation takes starts start at the start point is ignorance, yes, and then it goes in this general order. Okay, you will find that there are actually other suttas where the start point is not ignorance, and I've sent a couple of suttas to you guys to give you a sense of other suttas having a different start point. For instance, in a slightly different one, it starts from here, birth. Birth as condition, aging and death comes to be. And aging and death as condition. So you have bower as condition, jati. So bower is existence as condition, you have birth. Clinging as conditions, you have existence. So the start point is here, but it goes on. It, it, it will go back to explain a similar uh, precondition. You understand that? Yeah. Then you have a third one in the Mahanidana Sutta, 
where the start point is death. Aging and death as condition, condition for aging and death, birth. Condition for birth, becoming. Condition for becoming, clinging. Condition for clinging, craving. The flow is similar, but that start point is different. Then the question is, why? If Paticca Samuppada is supposed to be just one way of understanding, there can only be one start point. It will be avijja, and nothing else matters. But no, Buddha, depending on when he talks, he will use a different start point. Yes, the flow is similar, the conditions are similar. Of course it's similar because it's supposed to be like that. Because you have some things, the next thing must arise. So the idea here is to try and explain, is try to explain the underlining principle of the mind, condition, conditionality. It is condition that drives your mental state and behaviour. It's because of something that exists, something else arises. Because something else doesn't exist, that other thing will fade away, will not exist. This is the idea you first got to see. Don't worry about the flow. The principle of conditionality is the first thing you need to bear in mind. It is therefore a way of explaining anicca. It is a way of explaining anatta. You see what I'm saying? The point here is the Buddha used this to explain anicca, to explain anatta, and to show dukkha, how it all happens. So, if you get fixated with the individual components, you're going to tie yourself up in knots. Don't get tied up in knots. First, understand the principle of conditionality. That's my point. Okay? Once you've understood the principle of conditionality, it's far easier to then get the idea how, how it works. Okay, And this is how it goes. Let's not do ignorance first because this is the hardest and I will explain to you at the end what that is. But in the meantime, let's take it the easier way first. And the easier way is actually here. This is the easier way. What is the condition for death? Must Aging and death must be birth. No birth, we've got death. Process. Huh? No, no, no. The point is the condition. In order that there is death, you must first have birth. That one is easy to understand. You see what I'm saying? The moment you take one chunk that is easy to understand, you can then understand the precondition for it. Because of birth, because there is the condition of birth, there will be death. What is the condition for birth? How did birth come about? There has to be one thing. There is a becoming. There is energy to become. Then you can arise, ma. If there isn't a becoming, 
a one, uh, you see, uh, you notice, uh, craving, clinging, becoming or existence. The word is bower. Bower actually has two meanings. Bower has the meaning of existence. Bower has the meaning of becoming. Okay? Two meanings. Can you see this connection first? And it's pretty obvious. Craving. When you want something, when you want something, you will cling. So, craving as a condition, with craving as a condition, you will cling. You can even imagine it. Don't have to think very hard, right? When you want something, the one thing will make you cling onto the next, that, that thing. When you cling and you cling and you cling, the next part is you will come again and again and again. You can even imagine it. Whether you talk about the rebirth or you're talking about just in this life, just in daily existence, it's the same. When you crave for something, you will cling. When you cling, you want to experience it again and again. You experience it again and again, you go and do it. No? You go and get it. No? There will be birth. No? You see what I'm saying? So, up to this point, Patichin Samapadha is obvious. I don't even have to work very hard to persuade you that it's like that. It is obvious. Okay? Now we push it further down. How did the craving come about? It's because you have feeling. Pleasant and unpleasant, which is why I kept saying, pleasant feeling make you one craving. Unpleasant feeling make you one not to have it. It's also craving. Feeling positive or negative, you will still got this thing come out. Okay? How did feelings come about? The condition for it is because you came into contact with things. If you didn't think about it, if you didn't see it, if you didn't hear it, no contact, no feeling, no craving, no clinging, no wanting it again and again, experiencing it again and again, no, none of the above. So again, very obvious. Huh? Let's go further back. How did contact, how is contact even possible? Puzzle. Puzzle is possible only because you have six sense bases. Without any, if one, one of the six sense bases is missing, where you are concerned, there will be no contact pertaining to that organ. Therefore, Buddha explained, the six sense bases must be the condition for contact. Again, very obvious, huh? How did six sense basis? How does it come about? Why is there hearing? Why is why is it possible to hear? Why is it possible to see and taste and all? It's because you have a functioning mind. Your brain works. There is a brain. There's an organ that works. Or if you are not, you happen to be dewa, light energy or what? There is still. Mentality. I, I like Bhante Bikubodi's translation. Mentality and materiality. He doesn't say body. <laughs> it's actually Nama Rupa. But a mind, a mind that sits on material form and 
Because of this combination arises the possibility of all your organs working. And therefore, there is an experience of an external world as well as an internal world. Because six sense basis, there's a thought part. You take this further back, and this is the interesting one. This is the one that people get a bit uh, caught up. No, not the, no, 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 the eye, but because this seems to be consciousness, is there, ma? Then how come there is one more here that talks about consciousness? This one you, you need to refer to Mahanidana Sutta. And in the Mahanidana Sutta, there is an interesting explanation that this consciousness is the result of something taking birth. A consciousness preempting birth, then taking on birth, from that consciousness arises formation of the being within a womb or within whatever system. Okay? This is in the Mahanidana Sutta. Yes, according to the Mahanidana Sutta. Okay. Um, now let's let's understand it. Let's let's take that aside. Okay. That's that's important to understand and it's important to bear in mind. This is in the Sutta. We take it aside and we reflect about our own life. Okay. And what again application? Uh, Dhamma concepts in application within the mind as you experience life. And you ask yourself this. Um, when, you, when you perceive things, when you have sensations, somehow that underpinning it is it, like a platform of consciousness. Underpinning its consciousness. So what we are saying is, Vedana, perception, even your experience of the form, the body, there is a consciousness experiencing all these things. A functioning, functioning mind that experiences these things and register the experience. That's all. That's, that's, that's all we are saying. And this is how you experience your mind and life. Understand? Up to this point, you, or you're completely blur. Never mind, just, just, just reflect. As I said, is not to be thought of conceptually, it is to be seen in the mind as you experience life. And whatever part that you can see, take those first. Actually, if you look at your own mind, that's why I kept saying, go back to your mind, right? In order to have perception, there has to be consciousness. If you don't have uh, if your, your consciousness is experienced through perception. You, see, you hear what I'm saying? In order to have perception, there must be consciousness. But your perception is possible because of consciousness and your consciousness at any one point when you are experiencing perception, that's your consciousness. So the Buddha is correct. If you apply it to your mind and you stare at it, right? That's how it works. You, you get it, right? Mentality, materiality is actually your five aggregates. 
Nama Rupa. Okay? I mean, it's essentially Nama Rupa. Okay? Feelings. In order to have feelings, the feelings are also here, but it's also there. That's why I say it's not about how the mind, it's not a linear thought process. It's, it's, it's a whole mess. How do you think? You don't think in a linear way. It keeps going in loops within the mind. It keeps going in loops. Underpinning feeling is consciousness. You've got no consciousness, your feeling doesn't work. In order that you can experience feeling, there must be consciousness. Therefore, in the experience of consciousness at that point, that the content of consciousness is feeling. You understand what I'm saying? It's that loop here. The loop is here. Okay? This part is the tricky one, this portion. And I love this portion because this one is, as you, as you start to deepen your appreciation of the Dhamma, this is the one which will become most obvious. It will become the most obvious. Let me explain. Huh? What is this ignorance? It is always said, ignorance is ignorance of the four noble truths, right? A lot of people who are Buddhists will know very well the Four Noble Truth. So they will say, I don't have ignorance, but I still have Dukkha. Or I do have a lot of understanding already, but there's still the Dukkha. And the reason is because this ignorance uh, operates at two levels. At one level is constantly underpinning your perspective and instincts and your, your, in the way that you see the world, constantly you are aware of craving, the interaction between craving and dukkha. You know when you want something, the sensation of dukkha will come up. You know that if you can let go, the sensation of dukkha will diminish. This idea, this association is not just a concept, it becomes a viewpoint, a lens through which you see the world, it is your way of life. You feel it. It becomes the way you will relate to the world. You feel it. It is your value system. It has become embedded into your value system because you not just know it, you build it into an instinct. This is how you see the world, okay? That's at one level. It changes your worldview. Secondly, when you are of that mind, the odds are your meditation and mindfulness practice is fantastic. So what will happen to someone with this kind of, mental, this kind of mindset is he is extremely mindful, he's very sharp, he's very aware. He lives moment to moment. The avidja pertains to ignorance of the mind at any one time as well as ignorance of the value system as, as necessary in order that there won't be the sensation of dukkha. Let me explain. Suppose, let's say, 
you have gone you have gone for retreats, right? You're all gone for retreats, right? And then during retreat, you're particularly mindful. During retreat, you're particularly mindful, right? When you're particularly mindful, you're very mindful of Dhamma. You're mindful of your cat doesn't count. You must be mindful of Dhamma. Yes? And when you're very mindful of Dhamma, when you're very mindful of Dhamma at the retreat, your sense of dukkha is not the same as the way you sense dukkha in daily life. You will see at the distance, you'll see it come, you'll see it go, you'll let it be. At that point, your ignorance is minimal. You don't realize it. Your ignorance of the moment, your ignorance of Dhamma is minimal. So in a retreat, if you're doing it correctly, your sense of Dukkha should be minimal. In fact, you will see and understand Dukkha is like that. When you are mindful and you're not holding on to anything, you're okay. Dukkha doesn't arise. And you're experiencing the sense of peace. You understand that? So at a retreat, you still have avidya in daily life. You don't even realise that for you at the retreat, your avidya has reduced. You don't even realise it. But all you know is that the dukkha is reduced. You may see it more, but you will feel it less. You see it more. You see dukkha, you understand dukkha, but you don't feel the discomfort as much. What has happened? What happened is this. This has diminished. When this has diminished, then what is this one? Shankara. The more you understand, the more you make the wiser choice. The more you learn to let go instinctively. The more you don't hold on instinctively. The more you will lead your life through Dhamma way. So, can you now see that if the ignorance is not there, you won't have the problem that leads to Dukkha. You won't have that problem. Actually, Patija Samupadda is to explain Dukkha. The intent of this is to explain why is it we, living beings, experience Dukkha, how it happens. Let me explain, the Buddha says, how individual will experience Dukkha. You experience Dukkha because and then it leads all the way back to not knowing the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. That's what he has always been saying. The more you understand the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, the more the Dukkha will diminish and you will experience Nibbana. The more. And this essentially is him unpegging things to help us understand how in the way we make choices, how the mind instinctively works, how the two of them come together and we experience Dukkha law. You understand that? Now does this thing not seem so daunting? So a lot of us get caught up here because there seems to be repetition. Because we assume that it is a thought process. But that wasn't his intent. His intent was to explain why the individual, because of ignorance, will experience Dukkha. How the individual will experience Dukkha. And you will experience Dukkha because of... See, craving is here. Craving is almost and built 
in instinct for human because of these things. These are, these are experiences of the mind. They operate by themselves. This is where you make choices. Contact, you, contact is not a choice. Huh? Feeling is instinctive. But here your choices start. This is where your choices begin. But if you don't have... Perception is not, it's missing here. But it's okay. It's there. Exactly, you see? So the point... Correct. When you, when you start to see this, as a thought process, for sure you'll get all caught up in knots, especially if you're a Dhamma scholar, because you know all these words. Ma. But the moment you try to unpack that and say, look, it's all about trying to understand Dukkha and how in developing wisdom, in developing an understanding of Dhamma, you will start to neutralize the mind's instincts which lead to dukkha. You look at the mind, look at how your mind works. The moment you start to see your practice, understand the link between the noble truths and dukkha, the moment you start to see that intensely, the moment you start to practice and you're very mindful of the mind, you, you start to make, then your ignorance starts to fade, your choices will start to be correct. It's, it's all there already. And so the moment your choices is correct, right, then there won't be, you will still have these processes, but it's not in the way of an ignorant mind. The processing of the mind, that's why I tell you it is not, it is not a lineal mental state. It merely explains how the function of the mind in its own merry way will lead to this kind of choices if you start off by not having wisdom. But the moment you have wisdom, then your choices will not be wrong. You won't make the kind of choices that will lead you to have this problem. You will still continue to have your normal daily life. But in your daily life, in the way that you look at things, in the way that you respond to things, in the way that you label things, you don't label it as mine, I. You don't label it this way. So this thing, this thing continues to function, but this one doesn't give you problems. This, one was, this, this is where it starts to change really. Your feeling, you will see it. You will only see it detachedly. And the craving energy, yes, yes, it bubbles, but you don't let it affect you. You will see it and you let it go. Clinging is very minimal then you won't get to kala. Okay, in the Mahanidana Sutta, now to kind of prove that what I was trying to explain is that Buddha merely wants to show Paticca Samupa the conditionality and how it works. It is not mean, it's not meant to be so hard because I'm explaining the way the mind works. It's not like that. I'll show you. Uh, if in the Mahanidana Sutta, if you look at page 225, 224, 225, uh, uh, number 9, number 9, number 9, uh, you look at what he said, and so Ananda, feeling conditions craving, we know that, right? Craving conditions seeking, okay, that's clinging. And, and then he goes on, look, seeking conditions acquisition, acquisition conditions Decision-making, decision-making conditions lustful desire, lustful desire conditions attachment, 
and so on and so forth. There's a whole list of new conditionality. Isn't it? All the way up to because of the guarding of possessions that arise, the taking up of stick and sword, quarrel, disputes, argument, and so on and so forth. So now he used conditionality as a principle to explain how it functions in other areas. So the intent, I repeat, of conditionality as a principle, it is meant to be a principle to understand anatta, anicca, and dukkha. It is not meant to be a pure explanation of how the mind works in a linear way. It's not that. It's not in time sequence. It's not in absolute time sequence. Okay? Easier to appreciate. Conditionality, and you need to appreciate conditionality because it's a way of understanding anatta. Look, it all drives itself. It drives itself. And the only way you can crack it is to get this one right. To understand intuitively, instinctively, the relationship between craving and your stress, your dissatisfaction. Understand that intuitively. So at any one time when you do remember, meaning your avid just soften. At any one time when it softens, and it can soften any time. This is something which I, I want to stress. Huh? It's not softening only for the Aryas. You are a student of Dhamma. As a student of Dhamma, it will also soften for you. Any time it softens for you is when your sense of dukkha will soften. That's all. That's what it means. What does it mean when it softens for you? When you're more mindful, when you're more alert, when you are fully mindful that when you cling, it's going to be dukkha. So you try to, ah, yeah, sudah lah. You keep trying to tell yourself, it's okay lah, it's okay. Even doing things like this, ah, by telling yourself, not mine, not I, not self. Even by doing that, knowing that this is part of the practice, it's softening this. Even when you are saying, not mine, not I, not self. I don't want to get angry with you. Getting angry is just mind-made. The more I'm, I construct things, the more I get angry. I'll just stop here. Doing that, being mindful that this is part of Dhamma, is taming, reducing avidya. Because it's with panya that you're softening it. You, un you understand that? So at every point you start to be successful in softening this avidja, this ignorance, your choices, shankara, your volitional formation, your choices, your thoughts, you will gear towards letting go, letting be. Straight away, the whole, it will be softening of dukkha. Because your clinging is softened, no? Craving is softened. Okay? 